Welcome to Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, Army Ranger, real estate investor, and income enthusiast. On this show, we uncover the keys to attaining financial freedom. There are so many people listening right now who are stuck in that day-to-day, nine-to-five rat race. Luckily, it's only temporary. Each week, we bring on guests that help us discover the steps to build financial freedom, passive income, and generational wealth, so we can live the life we were born to live. Money is freedom. Let's get to the show. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, and today's guest is Dennis Shapiro. Dennis began investing in real estate in 2012 when the market was just beginning to recover from the global financial crisis. He went on to build a cash-flowing portfolio that included many alternative assets, such as note and ATM funds, mobile home parks, life insurance policies, tech startups, industrial properties, short-term rentals, and more. He also co-founded an investment club for accredited investors in 2019. Leveraging these successes and the lessons learned throughout his career, Dennis launched SIH Capital Group, an alternative investment fund that provides accredited investors with a simplified strategy to invest for passive income. Dennis, there's a lot going on there, dude. There's a lot to unpack. I'm pumped you took the time this weekend to get together today. Welcome to Wealth Science, bro. I'm really excited for today's show. Uh, Me too. Thank you for having me, man. Dude, yeah, it means a lot for you to take time. Like, again, I know you're a busy dude. You've got the fun going on. You've got the, you're the, you've got the father job. It's, it's Sunday morning. It means a lot. You just fed the kids. We've got so much to unpack this morning, dude. And, and just to prep for today's interview, man, I've been, I've listened to at least half a dozen episodes you've been on. I'm, I've been all over your guys' website. So no doubt we're going to bring great content to the audience today. For the, for the audience who doesn't know you, Dennis, I mean, if you could take just a couple minutes and introduce yourself and kind of tell your story and stuff like that. Sure. So I started investing when I was 14 years old. My oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, it was definitely a unique experience because I was a little bit of a cynic at that time. So I read the book and I wasn't like, I didn't have that profound moment that a lot of other investors kind of share. Uh, I was like, wow, this guy probably makes a lot more money on his book tours and stuff like that and his speaking engagements and what he really talks about in the book. Uh, but I did get one thing out of the book was I need to, uh, you know, potentially buy an asset. And I, I, that was the one key piece of takeaway that I got when I was 14. I did reread the book later on and I did have the more, you know, uh, life awakening moments, uh, reading it older when I wasn't as, a, wasn't as cynical. Uh, so I started investing when I was 14. I listened to my older brother. We went, I went and got a, I bought a, a mutual fund because that's what he was doing. Uh, it turned out to be a really bad investment. I think I waited like a whole year to realize that. Uh, I thought I was going to be rich by the end of the year. Instead, I was just, hey, I got to, I need to do something better than this. Uh, so from there, I went down more of the traditional rabbit hole. I started researching like some of the bigger, better stock pickers, the Warren Buffetts and the Peter Lynch's and their strategies and and even Jim Cramer and all of that stuff. And that's what I thought I was going to go to school for. I, I went to a very pro-business school uh, in New York City. And that was my intentions. I wanted to be some kind of analyst or a portfolio manager, something in the equity space. And unfortunately, the timing and the stars did not align. Now I'm looking back at it and I think it's fortunate. But uh, at that time, it was definitely unfortunate. I went to school during the uh, 
the global financial crisis. So I was interviewing for internships my junior year, and it was like smack in the middle. And I remember where a lot of those internships are multi-round interviews. And by the time I got to the later interviews, like the company was no longer in business. Uh, it, it was a pretty crazy time period. And so I was finishing my senior year. And then I kind of was like at a crossroads, like, what should I do? You know, at one hand, there's a there's a financial crisis. On the other hand, you know, my my life dream was kind of like evaporating. So I was like, all right, let me go maybe buy myself more time and go for my MBA. And I was really fortunate because I sh probably shouldn't have been accepted to my MBA program with the fact that I didn't have any like significant real life experience uh, besides my, you know, my college jobs that I was kind of just, they were like holdovers. Uh, but I fortunately made a good impression on a couple of professors and they recommended uh, me to the program. And I went for my, I went straight through for my MBA. And then while I was in my MBA program uh, at my school, I got recruited by the government and it was really like a nice refreshing change because I was going through like so many uh, job interviews where I couldn't get anything. And then it was like, hey, we want you. Uh, so that change of pace was great. So I started working. I got recruited by the government. I started working for the government in 2010. I remember I getting my first paycheck. And that's there was like a life moment there because all my other paychecks, I've been working since I was 14. But between 14 and 22, it was jobs where you're not felt, your taxes are not felt because you're you're in the lowest income bracket. You know, you're back, you make $10, $12 an hour at that time. It's not going to, you know, they're not going to really dang you too much on, you know, they're not going to ding you too much on taxes. So I remember I got my first W-2 and I was like, whoa, I was like, wow, what is all of this? And I was like, wow, they're, they're not only my employer, they're my business partner here. So that's when I, you know, came home that day. I think I, I, I had a couple of Google searches, a couple of failed ones at first because I didn't specify legally, but I, I kind of uh, searched for different variants of, you know, how to pay taxes, how to pay less taxes. And I finally stumbled onto real estate and it's been, you know, that's kind of where my alternative investment journey begins. I went from a single family rental and I had, you know, my own unique, I guess, failings with that. But then that kind of uh, transitioned into way more passive stuff like fund investing and investing in syndications and different types of syndications and life insurance policies. And that's kind of where my journey went, where I have been a traditional equity investor for the last 20 years. I never gave that up. But in the last 10 years, I kept I've kept building up this alternative portfolio and I realized that the two did not have to be looked at as it is in, in our, I guess, circle, like where it's a verse situation where it's, it's really strange for some reason to meet an investor who does both, who still has like index funds and still invests in real estate because they usually, you know, the, the traditional guys, they, they listen to their financial advisors and the alternative investment space is like, oh, full of Ponzi schemes. And then the alternative side, they've already made the transition and they're like, well, there's just two more, too many advantages on the, on the real estate side, you know, you get the leverage and, and the tax benefits and everything like that. So why would I ever, you know, keep investing in the stock market? So I'm, I'm one of those rare breeds that I see the benefits of investing in both. And it was probably 20 years in the making to get to where my philosophy is now. 
Yeah, that there's that's super interesting. I mean, so much to unpack there, dude. I, I was curious, and uh, when when you're working in the government, dude, I mean, you already talked about already that the biggest aha moment was like that first check, and it's like, whoa, there's all these taxes that get taken out of my paycheck. Was there anything else? I'm curious, and working in the government post financial crisis and kind of seeing the government side, was there anything that that like that that's kind of invested your investing career later on, or or anything like that? I'm curious. It has and it hasn't being part of a larger organization. Like I've met the commissioner of my agency. Um, I've gotten like citations and all these great things. But then, you know, I would have a bad week with uh, like I would have a change in management and all of that is like gone. And that's kind of the stuff that really stuck like to me where it wasn't I wasn't my happiness wasn't dependent on my like my something I did, my happiness would always be dictated by whoever my manager is at the time and whether or not they liked me or not. And I think that drove me to be more entrepreneurial. And actually for, for a couple of years, it actually just drove me to like the fire movement and the early retirement. Uh, it wasn't until like I kind of stumbled onto commercial real estate where I realized that that is a way better path for me. And like having to deal with kind of bureaucracy on a daily basis really, really lights the fire to go that route. Yeah. I mean, so many people tell this story and I see it even in my own career in the military, just being your own boss is like, is the goal, dude. I want to set my own hours. I don't want to answer to anyone. If, if the kids are like sick or something, I can stay home and work from home and stuff. Just having that freedom to be able to do what you want, dude. That's so, that's so powerful. But, uh, I I had a, another question that prequel to the commercial real estate and, and what you got into, obviously that, you know, composes the majority of your fund in your portfolio. You had, you had one single family home and so many people get into the space with a similar story to you, I think they get that first single family home and they're like, you know, holy shit, this is what being a landlord is all about. I'm curious that first single family home, I mean, good investment, bad investment, were there any like terrible landlord stories that kind of pushed you into like, I got to do some commercial stuff instead? Yeah. So I, I think if I labeled this as bad, it would be like doing a huge disservice to the word bad. And uh, people who, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was terrible 10x. Uh, so the the origins of that purchase was all wrong. I literally called uh, called my oldest brother, who I, I I tended to always use as as my mentor for a while, and that those roles kind of switched up a little bit in the when I kind of got into alternative investments. But for a really long time, you know, I he's eight years older than me. He was he had a small rental portfolio, and this is what I recommend never to do to any one of your listeners. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I got a lot of taxes taken out. I think I'm purchasing a house. You have anything you want to sell? And he looks, he's like, oh, yeah, I could sell that one. And he literally gave away his like, biggest headache. Uh, it was a single family rental, low income area. Um, it Honestly, it wasn't that bad. I've only dealt with one or two evictions. Uh, no, I, I dealt with one eviction, one gut rehab, one break in um, multiple times. But it was like it was dealing with stuff that I shouldn't have to deal with. Like my my second tenant there in a span like five years, he literally changed his phone number. Like his number would change. I I, I wouldn't say daily, but like monthly would not be an exaggeration. Uh, 
So they would go like months where I had no communication with him. And like, I would have to go through his like caseworker to get in touch with him. Um, and he kept up the, the place in decent shape. I didn't have to renovate. I only had two tenants there. So stuff like that wasn't that bad. The cash flow looked way better on paper. The, the real problem was dealing with that low income area that is in a high property tax area. I literally bought this thing in 2012 for like 85,000. I probably overpaid my brother considerably for the, the property. But then, you know, eight years later, when I disposed of it, I sold it for like literally a value of 60,000. And this is 2012. Like if I took that money and I invested it into anything, like anything, like I, I don't want to exaggerate, but I could have literally bought like ice cream and sold it later. It would have been a better return than losing, you know, 30% on your money at in 2012, literally like the best time to buy ever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you had bought 80 grand in ice cream, it would have been worth more in 2020. That's fine. That's that's really <laughs> good. Um, but I feel like there are so many more lessons learned there. And it's like, man, I don't want to be a landlord. You know, where can I invest passively and get way better returns? And obviously, you know, take down bigger deals and stuff like that. So we're along that line was like this aha moment of finding commercial real estate and and doing bigger deals and investing in those types of deals. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. So it was definitely not overnight. Like I purchased that first property in 2012. Uh, I probably then I, I was a pretty big listener into uh, into uh, like bigger pockets. And sometimes when I would listen to a podcast and they mentioned more of an alternative and wasn't just about single families. Uh, like when Dave Van Horn went on and talked about notes, I was like, wow, this sounds really cool. Let me see what his company does. And it was just a slow trickleation of that for a long time. It was just like slow trickle of these opportunities. And I did a note fund and, and then I did, um, you know, an ATM fund and these things kept trickling. And then I did crowdfunding. And then uh, there was a real aha moment with crowdfunding where I I looked at my options and a lot of the private securities was you had to spend like 50000 to get in. And at that stage in my life, it was still a little bit on the difficult side where it would take up a larger percentage of my portfolio that I would have liked to at that time. And I was like, wow, look at this crowdfunding alternative. And I was like, I could get, I could build a whole portfolio of 50,000 and I, I could put it into five deals and look at these great returns. The IRRs look fantastic. Like, whew, I was like high, you know, high teens, low twenties. I was like, these are great. I'm like, I don't know why anybody doesn't do these and why would anybody want to do a $50,000 investor investment? And, you know, I learned my lesson. So that was the, I, I invested in, and it wasn't one of these like low branded name co-founding uh, co um, crowdfunding places. This was like the number two crowdfunding site or portal, whatever you want to call it. And they advertised heavily how they were like, never had a deal go bad, blah, blah, blah. And to a new investor, it was just music to my ears because what I didn't realize is these deals take years to mature. And if a, if a platform is only alive for two years, it's hard for deals to go bad because it takes more than two years for deals to go bad usually. Uh, so and so what ended up happening is I ended up doing this these investments that I thought were professionally vetted and everything else. And then what I realized was the site was just masquerading as a real estate company. It was really just a nice website. Uh, and they didn't get around the VC funding. And then all of a sudden they cut the whole staff and 
like communication completely stopped for any one of these deals and like you get what you paid for. And then what I realized it was, that was my aha moment. It was, if I do want this to be a significant portion of my portfolio, I have to do this. I have to cut out the middleman. I have to do the work. I have to vet. I have to be comfortable with these deals that I'm doing and I cannot rely on a crowdfunding site or anything like that. And I'm sure there are good crowdfunding sites. My experience is really skewed to a really bad experience with one. Uh, but I just didn't want, I, I, I no longer wanted a middleman. I wanted to be the direct source for my deals and I'll put a little bit more faith in my own hands. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, Great lessons learned and, and incredible. And, and I have a little bit of experience in crowdfunding and stuff like that. But I, I think the, one of the most important parts from like the passive investor side is vetting that proven operator and vetting that GP team. And that's exactly um, what you're kind of doing. I find that super interesting. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, we talk so much about why alternative investments, and I'm a huge advocate of it too. For the people out there that are, you know, their portfolios are 100% in the stock market or something like that, Dennis. I mean, what do you think those people are really missing out on? Or what, you know, what bigger gains could they be gaining by going into some type of alternative investment if it's commercial real estate or if it's notes or something else? I'm curious. So the way I look at this is that traditional portfolios have an incredible track record that goes back a long, long time. Like you literally go back from, to like the 1920s and you could eke out an 8% return as long as you did like the Dow, the S&P. Uh, and that's nothing to sniff at. The only problem is that 8% was extremely volatile. So there'd be years that it's 30 and then there's be years that's negative 12. And um, that's the only thing. So the, the numbers actually are not that bad. If you did not panic, you made a good return on your traditional side. The problem where traditional has become problem is over the last couple of decades, the traditional uh, philosophies that used to work really, really well that created income is completely out the window because of all the algorithms and the way the new age trading. What used to, what used to happen, the golden advice would be like, if you have a portfolio, you'd allocate a portion of that portfolio to higher income stuff like, like bonds or uh, you know utility companies and REITs and MLPs and all of this stuff that has these higher yields. And in theory, it won't appreciate as much as the regular market does, but it would provide a higher yield and that higher yield would protect it on a downturn. The problem these days is a REIT is part of the S&P 500. You know, there's REITs in, in, in these index funds and all of these different things. And there's utility companies and all these things. So if there's a 2% correction or like when COVID was going on and, you know, the market was down 10,000 daily, you know what I mean? Then what ends up happening is that's going to go get hit that's going to get hit as well. So the, all the old traditional advice is out the window. So you, as a, if you're purely traditional, you're going to be looking at if you just have an index fund. You know, the S and P probably pays I think something between one and like one and a half percent these days if you're buying as of today. So you can't live off that yield. So what alternative investments, uh, what alternative investments can provide your portfolio is a higher yield. And since all those securities usually are private securities, they are less volatile. And because they're less volatile, it's much more dependable yield. So one of my one of my sayings is you can't get a good yield in the stock market is because you got unlimited liquidity. Unlimited liquidity leads to unlimited volatility. And volatility is the kryptonite to dependable yield. So all of that stuff, that's what 
alternative investments can do for you. And I think March 2020 was a great example of what happened. And I own, I still at that time owned some public REITs and I still had a lot of private securities at that time. And what ended up happening is my REITs were down 34% as much as the market was. It wasn't that the portfolio had properties in there that were 34% less valuable a month later, it was just traded off perception of what the earnings are going to be in the future. And on the private side, none of my assets traded hands because there was this disconnect in price. Uh, I remember for months I was talking to operators, and there was this there was this like fifteen percent window that wasn't being bridged, where the buyers were looking for blood on the street prices, and the sellers were saying, "Hold on." You know, we hear that there's stimulus coming. If we're hearing all of this different stuff, we're just going to wait it out. And what ended up happening is in the private world, if these apartment buildings aren't sold or these soft storages aren't sold, then there's no price difference, right? A lot of times you lock in your, your price gains in the back end. And that was a perfect example. It was on one side of my portfolio, I saw red, I saw 34% you know, declines. And then on the other side of the portfolio, it was smooth. It was just zero. So just by having... Having a portion of your money in alternative investments, you get a much less volatile, uh, less much less volatile traditional side of things, and and it allows you to take out a great deal of emotion because if all your money is in traditional and you're going to log in and you're going to see I'm 34% whopper in a month, that emotionally will mess with you. Versus, hey, even if you had 50% of your money on alternative investments, now your total portfolio, in theory, was only down 17%. So that's just significantly easier to, to, to stomach than being totally down 34%. I, I always bring this example up to anyone who I talk to or anything like that. I mean, the people who it, it was a bloodbath in, in March 2020. And, and I, I completely agree too. I, I don't look into that emotional aspect of it, but it is so true. When you log in and you see you're down 40%, dude, that has an effect on your personal life, your personal mindset, dude. It, it's so powerful. And then the less volatility of owning a hard asset like real estate, dude, that you can drive to ABC Avenue and touch. And, and just like you said, these sellers are like, hey, we're going to wait it out. Um, you know, we still have strong connections. I know mobile home parks did phenomenal overall during COVID. They still had very strong connections and stuff like that. So dude, yeah, that's so powerful. The less volatility is so important when looking at alternative investments for sure. Um, I, I was curious, dude, I want to talk a little bit about your fund and stuff like that. I, I, I love the construction of this fund and, and really how, you know, the types of deals you guys have in it. W what's the current percentage of the fund? I'm not sure if it's 80-20 or, or what exactly it is, commercial real estate to our other alternative investments and stuff like that. As of right now, I think it's just, it's 75, 25. 25 um, and the 25 that's not really in real estate is an ATM fund. Um, and the whole purpose of that was um, if you invest in a deal that doesn't overraise, what ends up happening is every commercial real estate deal usually has what's called a drag period. Well, I call it a drag period. I don't know if this is an actual term. And what ends up happening is you see the higher pref preferred return, and that's the that's the threshold where the split goes into effect afterwards. So if it's a 70-30 split, if you hit a 7%, then, then going forward, that money is split 70-30 between the LP and the GP. But what ends up happening is that preferred number to a lot of newer investors looks like what they think they're going to actually receive, and it's not. It's like a rollover for years. It could be a 
relevant. Maybe it's not, but most most of the time it does roll over for an extended period of time. And the number that the investors should be focused on is your cash on cash. Cash on cash is what you're actually going to be getting from that deal. Usually because of these drags, the cash on cash is fairly low because you're you're dealing with closing costs, you're dealing with a hot market. Uh, you know, even if they're saying, oh, this deal was off market, it was probably had 18 bids on it. You know, um, so those are the things that that play a role. So if you just invest in apartment buildings, and I love apartment buildings, apartment buildings are my core. And that's my that's my favorite asset class. That's that's the one I, I know the best. The problem is then I would have to be able to give my investors, they would be subject to that drag as well. Because I can't invest in a bunch of deals that do 4% year one and turn around and pay my investors a higher amount. By by being able to put an ATM fund in the mix, and this is a highly vetted ATM fund, uh, like I talk about in my book, and there's a huge due diligence process. It's not like, hey, it's like, oh, this sounds really good. I'm going to wire you the money. Like, that ATM fund was probably the most vetted deal I've ever done. And what it allows you to do is that extra cash cash yield allows you to overcome. And it's not like 50% is in the ATM fund, just a small portion is in the ATM fund. It lets you overcome that drag so that we could pay our investors a higher uh, cash on cash from day one. Yeah, no, that's super. I know, I know that's a big priority of your guys' fund to be able to pay um, in year one your investors that cash on cash. I know it's a huge priority of that seventy five percent that is commercial real estate. You know how how many? Uh, I guess what percentage is apartments? I know it's your core. You love that. What percentage? I know you're also big in mobile home parks and stuff like that. Um, what's the breakdown? I'm curious of that seventy five percent of the pie. So it's 25% apartment buildings right now. It's 25% mobile home parks and self-storage. The fund that I'm invested in is a multi-asset fund. So it's both mobile home park and self-storage. And then it's 25% in uh, development, but it's not typical development. It's it's a development of an existing fund, which allows certain deals to be exiting. So they actually do distribute uh, day one. Usually development funds have very late uh, late stage, like where they all do for three years, you don't see any cash flow. So this is a unique development fund. Uh, and I did want some of that exposure in, into the fund, but it's probably not going to be greater than 25%. Uh, so that's current. The current composition is that they're pretty even, but as, as I got like, an, I think we're going to be placing capital for another two more years as it goes. I think I'll be uh, going heavier and heavier into like the apartment buildings because we're kind of over that drag period. So we're in a situation that we're just going to focus on what we think is higher quality institutional assets. And that's usually found for me in uh, certain apartment building deals and mobile home parks and self-storages. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super interested as well in, in kind of the mobile home park self-storage. Like you said, it's 25% of what's in there. And I just had uh, Jeff Cook on here a few weeks ago, who in 30 days, I don't know if you know this, is going to be the largest owner of manufactured housing in New York State. I, I, I actually uh, visited him Tuesday. So yeah. Oh, no way. No way. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Phenomenal dude. I mean, really cool guy. He took time on yeah. his weekend to do this interview and obviously is, is a huge mobile home park guy and is under contract. They're doing like a... Uh, um, I forget what it is. I think a $30 million raise right now, and they've got 45 days to close it. Yeah, it's insane. Like yeah. This is a, it's probably one of the bigger raises I've ever seen. I think it's even maybe even higher. 
but I, I definitely don't want to speak for Jeff. Uh, he, yeah, super nice guy. I never thought in a million years I'd be flying to Rochester like in the middle of the week. Uh, but very cool, uh, very cool experience. This, uh, Jeff invests in his backyard. And he really like you go into his him and his brother's office and there's literally like this huge whiteboard and it's all like dotted out of every park that um, that he has. And it's a cool experience. Uh, like as a fund manager, it's important to actually meet people because you don't you don't see it all in the numbers. Like I was super impressed with Jeff. Like when I walked in, he it almost felt like a startup when I was there. He had like a ping pong table. Um, he had um, he had like the fanciest Starbucks Keurig machine I've ever seen where it like does live Starbucks coffee coming out. Uh, he has like a bring your dog to work day. And those are things you don't really associate with, you know, a mobile home park operator. Uh, but, you know, his his team has expanded greatly. So it's nice to see that he's really uh, he's looking out for his employees. Yeah. I mean, we got so much into that. He was telling me all the time, like anytime there's like six or seven dogs there just chilling hanging out, walking down the hall. And it creates such an awesome working environment, which is cool. This was like my very next follow-up question. You're already hitting on it, which is awesome. Like as a fund manager, what goes into that vetting process of operators? I mean, have you ever, I'm I'm curious, I mean, have you ever, you know, whatever meeting complete with an operator and been like, man, this is not a good fit. Like our interests aren't aligned for what I think my investors are going to like and stuff like that. I guess what's that overall vetting process like and, and what success have you had with it? So the vetting process is is difficult to describe because you you don't know what what's going to actually trigger as you saying like this is not the right deal for me. Okay. It could be something like, you know, the car that's being driven or it could be just the way he treats his employees or it could be anything like that. Uh because there are little little things that, you know, set you off. The other thing is it's just about really having a lot of conversations with them. Um, one good thing is a lot of people in the real estate, they come back from engineering background, everything like that. I come from a government background and my I dealt with a lot of people in my career, like a lot. I between I probably interviewed between six to 10 people a day for you know a 12-year period. If you do those numbers, you get a good sense of uh, like just radar, like, hey, what's going on? Like, you know, something about the story is not adding up and you, you do this for like 10 to 12 years. So sometimes it's not about the numbers. Um, a lot of times it's about who's referring them to me. Uh, there are certain people in the industry that I even trust way more than my own opinion. Uh, so those are, the, those are the people that I really lean on. And at this point, like I filtered out and I've with the investment club that I launched a couple of years ago, we did a lot of deals. And what that allowed us to do is expedite the learning curve where, you know, instead of doing two, three deals, we we did, you know, um, 10 to 12 different deals. And this allowed us to see best practices, best variables, which value add plans actually work, which don't. Um, all of these different things. And then, you know, surrounding yourself with good advisors. Like I have a mobile home park advisor, literally just on my team, uh, just because I have a really good relationship with him. And, you know, I I could come back from a trip from Rochester and get on the phone with him and, you know, kind of just be like, hey, what, what, this is what I saw. What do you think? And, that's a huge help. Like it's not, you, you can't rely on your, it's not always on yourself. A lot of it is how good of the people are that you are surrounding yourself with. 
Yeah, no, it's it's interesting, and I I, I know there's no cookie cutter answer for that. So uh, I thought you crushed it, you know, while that it's not it's not like one there's not one variable that's like, hey, this is the right fit or this isn't the right fit. There's so many different variables, and having the right you know advisors on the team to help you make that decision so that it is a right deal for the fund and stuff. It's it's just cool to hit fund managers with that question, and it, it's never the same answer. So that's super interesting. I, I just have a couple more questions for you before we wrap up, and a lot are, are kind of going back to the apartments and mobile home park side of a piece of your fund. So many people, you know, they talk about the affordable housing crisis in America right now and why mobile home parks are such an incredible investment. And they also talk about, you know, there's a shortage of housing. I'm curious your thoughts on both of those. I mean, do you agree there is a shortage of housing, affordable housing crisis, and and why that is such an awesome investment right now for your investors and why, you know, so much percentage is dedicated to your fund? Yeah, um, I I was always fascinated with mobile home parks. Um I think I've I've joined ventured in 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 one a few years ago. I got to see the behind the scenes. Uh, I also just really fortunate with the advisor that I teamed up with. Uh, I'll throw out his name, Jared, and he he has been you know he's he's a rare breed. He's a second generational operator. Uh, a lot you have a lot of newer investors going into the space who are literally just coming in, and so we had this interesting conversation yesterday about. Kind of like this, it's a little bit off topic, was what he's seeing is that you're getting so many new investors and they're paying such a premium. And the only way that they could they could make those numbers work is that they're raising the rents uh, to an amount that's not been seen in those communities for a really long time. It's just this poor understanding of the market that they're actually in. And it's it's it it's been happening at such a high frequency in this specific state, which is not a blue state, that then now there's actually talks of rent control. So it, it's it's kind of like, all right, this is a this is a this is a market that desperately needs to be um, desperately is in need because of the high, just so many, you know, how, how can you argue, you know, the need for four hundred dollar housing? You know, it's it's it, it, you can't make the counter argument almost, but at the same time, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Where if you're going in there as a newer investor or whatever it is, and you're you're being blinded by these high numbers, and the only way to make these numbers work is to really, really raise the rents, you're kind of shooting yourself, and you're just not aware of it because they're already in talks in in these you know in councils and stuff like that that. This is already, you know, this is already a problem. So, you know, stuff like that, I think, is important to understand. Uh, but if it's done right, for example, we are actually looking at low income housing, um, low and low income, low income housing tax credit uh, deal, and those are very special deals in the state of Pennsylvania, and they are 100% occupied with a waiting list. A lot of times there's a lot of deals out there where, you know, there'll be low 90s percent occupancy, especially in the apartment building space. And what ends up happening is though that occupancy is inflated because they get packed in there uh, right before because 90 is like a really magic number in the commercial real estate space. 90 is where you get better debt terms and um, there's but it leaves a little room on. Uh, uh, there leaves more room so someone can underwrite, you know, that 10% being renovated right away and we can fill it in at a higher rent value. So like you see a lot of deals straight hands in the low 90s. But what ends up happening is, and this is from prior experiences, just something I watch out for these days is that that low 90 is not really a low 90. It's really in the in the mid 
to low 80s. And it's just kind of being packed in with substandard tenants. And what ends up happening is you invest in a deal and then three, four months later, the deal's already, you know, it's already kind of went down like this. And now the operator kind of has to bring it back up. So those are a little, those are a little nuances, but the low income housing play that we're looking at is 100% occupied with a waiting list. So those are the, that's the difference because there's such demand in there that if you do it right and you do a quality product and you raise rents within the guidelines, because a lot of times they're contracted rents, sometimes in the lower income housing space. And if you do it right and your numbers still work by doing it right, then you know there's incredible demand for these products. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And people underestimate whenever I, I tell people like we're in mobile home parks or something like that, like people are like, wait, you 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 own trailer parks? And it's like, yeah. no, like this is a good product. Like we improve the communities, we 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 uh, you know improve these people's lifestyles. Everyone deserves a clean, safe, secure place to live. But I think people underestimate the demand for affordable housing in this country is massive. And people don't see that, um, which is why I think your fund is so advertising and why it could be, you know, an incredible investment for people. But I mean, I'm curious when you tell people, accredited investors out there, you know, we're in mobile home parks and stuff like that. This is the very last question before we jump into the bonus round. But I mean, is there pushback or is there anything or people like cringe like, Dennis, what are you doing with my money or or what is that? I'm curious. Honestly, the mobile home parks, no. I think it's gone mainstream, mainstream enough where if someone finds my fund, they're more or less familiar with mobile home parks, the ATM funds, yes. That's the one where they go and they're like, oh, you know, that's the one that makes them pump the brakes. And then I have to tell them about the due diligence and everything that we do with them. So it's much more ATM than mobile home parks. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. That's that's still uh, super cool though. I, I find that super interesting, but uh, cool, man. Just two, two last questions I just wanted to hit you with and get your thoughts on before we end this, dude. And neither of them are real estate related, but I hit them with everyone. So I'm super interested to get uh, your thoughts on it. Um, Dennis, if you could solve any problem in the world, I'm curious what it would be and why. I would say that I think everything has become way too political. Everything. It's scary that my kids are going to be grown up in a society where I do not believe, like I even watch movies now from like the late nineties and I'm like, there's no way that could happen again today. There's no way they could talk like that. They, there's no way they could depict this today. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just like, there's gotta be some kind of middle ground between, uh, you know, being sensitive and then at the same time, allowing some kind of leeway, uh, because it's just, it's super either right or left these days. And, to me, you know, if I just want to, you know, I'm pro business. I, I, I like, you know, but I'm pro values, people, people's values and pro liberties. And like, it, it's hard to be like in the middle these days. And it's so hard to be in the middle days. And it's, it's like, I, I don't know. That's what I would love to solve. I would love for more people to come into the middle because, you know, everybody's each other's neighbors and everybody's, and the communities are better when there, there isn't, when there isn't political divides and it's just the way social media, like, I don't know, it's like gasoline to the, to the flames. And I, I just don't want my kids growing up in that. And there's no way around it. And it's just, I did think social media as well, like, you know, social media is a necessary evil in the operating space because you have to get out there. You have to get your name out there. And that's the only way you do it. But honestly, before my company, I did not have like a Facebook. I did not have anything. And now that I'm like on it, I'm seeing like the messages and it's, it's so like, I, I don't understand. Like, why does it have to just be so right or left? Like, why can't we just be more in the middle and, you know, say that 
both sides have points, but let's figure out a way through this. Dude, out of like, we've probably done like 15 or 16 episodes. I'd probably say at least 50% have had some type of answer like that. So it's super interesting where it's like, it's almost a sense like we're divided. If people could come together um, just more towards the middle and, and acknowledge, like you said, both sides have great facts. But I, I totally agree too with your social media piece. I'm not, I wasn't a crazy social media dude until like a few months ago when we started raising capital for deals. And you do have to put yourself out there. And there are some times, dude, where I've been on it all day. And by the end of the day, like I just feel like shitty or I feel yeah. like drained, dude. And it sucks. I don't know why. I think it is seeing like all that content out there, just being hit in the face with it. I'm, I'm curious, like the long-term effects or, or what, you know, social media effects look like in like 20, 30 years from now. Um, it'll be super interesting, dude. But yeah, that was a phenomenal answer. So I appreciate that. The very last question, dude, before we end, you know, and, and dude, it's Sunday morning. You just got done cooking breakfast for the kids. I mean, you already are living the perfect life. We're talking, you know, compounding results from our alternative investments. But dude, Dennis Shapiro is living the perfect life. I'm curious what that looks like. Uh, well, I have three small kids. Uh, I got to stop rounding them down. Uh, they're almost six, four and three. Um, my perfect life is honestly, like, I love looking at business plans. I love being involved in actually coming up with business plans. So that, that gives me a lot of satisfaction with a really cool business plan, spending a lot of time with with my family. Um, I also reprioritized, uh, my life with my spouse because that was not being a priority as it should be. Uh, so that was a lot of growing pains with that and just realizations and having awesome people around me to help me with that and everything like that. So that's a perfect life, a happy wife with kids that are proud of their dad, um, and being able to do what I want to do my agenda for the day and not walking in and getting a completely screwed up agenda. That makes no sense which is something I've dealt with with the government for a really long time. Uh, so I'm really, um, I, I really, you know, respect and like appreciate having control over your own day. Dude, that's, that's powerful. And, and I love the answer and huge family man myself. So completely respect there. And it's that freedom, dude, to just set your own schedule and, and be able to do what you want that people just don't understand is so powerful. But Dennis, I, I've had a blast today, dude. And I just want to give you the opportunity. I mean, this has been incredible content. I want people to be able to follow up with you and hear more about you. I mean, what platforms are you on? What's the best way to reach out to you? So I'm on almost all the major platforms, but the best way to reach me is twofold. One, I have my book. It's on Amazon. Uh, This is a handful, but the title is The Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. Uh, It's a really cool book. A lot of the asset classes that I do invest in, um, I've, I've, I made them into chapters and you don't have to read 300 pages on mobile home parks for you to decide if it's a good asset class for you. So you could, you know, do a 20, 30 minute read. Uh, and then my favorite part about the book is it goes into two Q and A's, it's same Q and A's for every asset class. So you get to see how the mobile park operator answers those questions versus how the apartment building operator answers those questions. Um, it's really cool with that. Um, so my book is on Amazon, the alternative investment almanac. Uh, I won't repeat the second part. And my first, it's my first and last name. Dennis is spelled with one N. So it's D-N-I-S Shapiro. And then my company is sihcapitalgroup.com. If you go on my my website, there's uh, two sections where you'll see uh, requests for the abridged versions of my book. So I made an abridged version of the content. And then I made a abridged version of the Q&As. Uh, so you could just sign up to my email list and you'll get both of those. 
That's awesome, dude. I personally read this book just so everyone knows uh, two or three, probably two and a half times now, two full time, then skimming through it a third time. And it's incredible. I mean, the detail that you put into it, but just in a condensed version where you can kind of get the bottom line up front on why this is such a great investment and, and why the fund is a great fit and stuff like that. So dude, phenomenal job on that book. I highly recommend everybody read it. And, and thank you again, Dennis. Again, I know it's Sunday morning, dude. You're you're busy. It's father time. I, I don't want to take any more of your time. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing all the incredible things that you've accomplished here, you know, over the last decade. It's it's an incredible story and you're absolutely crushing it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Sounds good. Thank you guys. Thank you for having me. Yep. See you later, Dennis. Bye. You got it. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Wealth Science Podcast. Take some time to subscribe and leave us a review. It really is the basis that helps us continue to bring on amazing guests each week. We have another incredible story to share next week, and I'm certain it's going to add value to this community. Please do not hesitate to reach out if there's anything I can do to help you in your journey of attaining financial freedom. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.